Chapter Fourteen of the Lady's Mile. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Marie Nielsen, Vancouver, B.C. The Lady's Mile by Mary Elizabeth Braden. Mr. Lobier's Wooing another season had commenced the carriages in the ladies mile were gathering thicker every day though as yet there was not a leaflet on the trees in hyde park nor a ray of warm sunshine on the serpentine january the bitter had given place to february the uncertain when florence crawford tore herself away from the blusterous delights of the brighton esplanade in obedience to her father's summons she had been staying with some stylish friends who had taken a house on the east cliff while william crawford made the best of the dark short days working steadily at a picture which was to be one of the glories of the academy in the coming season florence crawford had not exaggerated her wealthy admirer's devotion mr lobier had spent the winter in perpetual rushing to and fro between london and brighton another man as deeply smitten as mr lobier would have been content to have taken up his abode at piccadilly supermar and to have devoted himself entirely to the society of his enchantress but miss crawford's admirer could not altogether tear himself away from the companions of his bachelor life there were winter races and mysterious pugilistic meetings and secret cock-fightings and diverse other entertainments connected with the annual creation from the delights of which beauty was powerless to beguile mr lobier he wanted to marry florence crawford and he meant to marry her the more completely she held him at bay and defied him by her coquetry and insolence the more dogged he became in his determination to win her for his wife he admired her beauty her grace her piquancy and he thought it would be a fine thing to have such a woman seated at the head of his table or sitting by his side in his male phantom with the most thoroughbred of bull terriers on her lap and a forty-guinea tiger-skin over her knees he admired everything that was gorgeous and expensive and out of reach of that large class of humanity whose members did not possess bankers books and whom he contemptuously generalized as cads he admired florence crawford because in his own phraseology she was the best thing he had seen in the way of girls but he had carefully considered the prudence of the step before he committed himself by any deliberate avowal of his admiration 
i might marry a woman with plenty of money he thought but then i shouldn't have much of a choice i like to choose my horses and dogs and i should like to choose my wife florence crawford must have some money for she's an only child and those painter fellows make no end of money nowadays and as crawford has been a widower sixteen or seventeen years i don't suppose there's much chance of his making an idiot of himself by marrying again after regarding the matter with extreme deliberation mr lobier arrived at the conclusion that he might as well gratify his own inclination and marry the painter's daughter whose bewitchingly disdainful airs gave zest to his courtship so when florence went back to the fountains she returned as the affianced wife of thomas lobier and she carried in one of her portmanteaus a casket of jewels which winked and twinkled in the cold winter sunshine when she lifted the lid to peep at her treasures she had left the east cliff radiant with feminine vanity bright with the golden halo of success for her friends knew that before the year was out she would be mistress of pevenshaw place and a west end mansion and she knew that they envied her good fortune mr lobier's society was not eminently delightful but mr lobier's male phantom and thoroughbred steppers were absolute perfection mr lobier's conversational powers were very limited but the establishments of brighton jewelers are more fascinating than any other jewel shops in england and are scarcely to be surpassed by the glories of the rue de la paix and mr lobier had been a liberal customer in castle square william crawford had heard of his daughter's conquest and had been congratulated upon the brilliancy of her prospects but he had not taken upon himself to interfere with her arrangements the manners and ideas of modern young ladies were something past the pure-minded artist's powers of comprehension he remembered his wife with her primitive notions and womanly tenderness so fond so clinging so loving so girlishly sentimental so quick to be pleased with any simple pleasure so ready to be frightened by a harsh word or moved to tears by a tender thought and remembering her he was utterly bewildered by the daughter who was so like and yet so unlike that lost darling whether the sentiments which florence openly professed were the expression of her real feelings or only the fashionable cant of her sex mr crawford was at a loss to imagine but the tone of her conversation gave him unspeakable pain this daughter who spoke of him as a dear old party and who pronounced his best picture to be awfully jolly was so unlike the daughter he had dreamed of welcoming 
to the home of his prosperity he knew that she was charming the slang from her lips took a new accent and assumed a pretty quaintness in place of its native vulgarity he had seen that her heart needed only to be awakened by some pious appeal some sorrowful spectacle to reveal itself rich in all womanly tenderness and compassion but she was not the daughter of his dreams i am punished for my cowardice he thought i was afraid to face the struggles of poverty with my child in my arms i gave her into the hands of strangers and i am fool enough to wonder now that she is strange to me miss crawford tripped into the painting-room immediately after arrival at the fountains and elevated herself on tiptoe in order to embrace her father you dear old darling how you do smell of varnish she cried after bestowing a kiss upon each of his cheeks are you using copal for your new picture dreadfully stiff stuff to work with isn't it and what is the new picture you didn't tell me that in any of your letters and i've been dying to know i suppose i may look before the painter could reply his daughter had planted herself before the easel and was contemplating his unfinished work as long as it's nothing about marie antoinette mary queen of scots don quixote jill blast or the vicar of wakefield i'm satisfied she said she stood looking at the picture for some minutes and then shrugged her shoulders impatiently as she turned to the painter i must give it up papa she exclaimed it's rather nice but you must have half a page of description in the catalogue if you want people to know what it all means it was the picture of a page holding a horse in a woody landscape the page wore the costume of charles the second's court but the loose tumbled hair falling about the fair neck the small jeweled hand that grasped the bridle the delicate curves of the figure the disorder of a dress that seemed to have been arranged by unaccustomed hands and the shrinking terror of the pose betrayed the sex of the pretended page the attitude of the horse expressed as intense a terror as that which agitated the woman the bright chestnut of his sides was darkened with sweat the distended nostrils were flecked with foam the eyes were dilated the woman's face was exquisitely beautiful but its loveliness was of the diabolical rather than the angelic order the eyes of the disguised beauty were turned with a look of unspeakable horror towards a woodland glade which stretched away in the background and her disengaged hand was pressed convulsively upon her breast as if to control the beating of her heart 
on the grass near the horse's feet there lay an embroidered glove and a cavalier's cloak whose rich purple velvet and gold embroidery made a mass of color in the foreground who is she papa asked flo her dress is unutterably jolly and her hair looks as if you had painted it with a patent tube of liquid sunshine what a wonderful old thing you are but allow me to inquire for the second time what it all means a pretty woman doesn't dress herself in a ruby velvet doublet and hold a horse in a wood without a motive the woman is the countess of shrewsbury who disguised herself as a page and held the duke of buckingham's horse while he fought a duel with her husband it's not a very moral story and i doubt if i shall exhibit it but you needn't tell people what it means papa and i'm sure they'll never find out call it lady rachel russell you can invent a story about an attempted escape of her husband or something of that kind you know but if you've any difficulty about the picture mr lobier shall buy it of you papa added florence with a tone that sounded rather like patronage she was quite capable of patronizing her father thank you my dear the picture is sold already to a person who understands pictures answered mr crawford gravely he was standing with his back to his daughter washing his hands in a basin that formed part of the paraphernalia of a stand on which he kept the implements of his art the winter twilight was thickening and the light of the low fire was hidden by a crimson screen flo stood in the bay window looking out into the garden with a meditative air you speak of mr lobier as if he were quite your own property florence said the painter as he walked to the fireplace and pushed away the screen the firelight showed him his daughter's profile her head bent her eyes downcast the small gloved hands trifling with her bonnet strings she did not make any reply to her father's remark and yet he could scarcely doubt that she had heard him do you really mean to marry this mr lobier william crawford asked presently i wish you wouldn't call him this mr lobier papa cried flo impatiently what has he done that he should have a reflexive pronoun tacked on to his name as if he were some new kind of wild animal he has asked me to marry him ever so many times and and i suppose i do mean to marry him papa if you have no objection added florence dutifully if i have no objection exclaimed the painter what influence have the fathers of the present day over their children that their opinion should be asked or their wishes consulted don't look at me so imploringly i am not angry with you my dear i am only an old-fashioned fellow 
and there are many things i see nowadays that mystify me if you like mr lobler and mr lobler is as he seems to be very much in love with you i cannot make any objection to your marrying him though i will tell you frankly oh pray don't papa cried florence pray don't tell me anything frankly when people talk about being frank they are always going to say something disagreeable it's very odd that the truth always should be so unpleasant i know what you were going to say papa almost as well as if you had said it you were going to tell me that i may marry mr lobier if i please but that you don't like him and that you never have liked him and so on the moment a girl is engaged to be married to a man people seem to think that they are privileged to abuse him i don't wish to abuse mr lobier my dear if you are really attached to him flo shrugged her shoulders impatiently and if you really think you can be happy as his wife i have nothing to say against the marriage i suppose if i were a very prudent man i ought to rejoice at the idea that my little girl can never know what worldly misfortune is but but what papa cried flo she had untied her bonnet strings and had thrown the fragile structure of velvet and feathers aside in her impatience the fact is miss crawford had not returned from brighton in the best possible humour and her father's grave manner annoyed her the hinchcliffe girls were never tired of congratulating me papa she said and miss hinchcliffe declared i was the luckiest creature in christendom and aunt jane called she has taken a house in marine square for the children and the hinchcliffs asked her to dinner and of course they would tell her all about mr lobier and she was delighted and went away in such spirits declaring that if i have a town house she will make my uncle move from russell square to tyburnia but now i come home you snub me and throw cold water upon me and make me feel as if i were a kind of criminal it's very cruel of you papa my dear child i have no wish to be cruel and so the hinchcliffs are delighted and aunt jane is delighted because you are going to marry mr lobier it is not because he is handsome i suppose for i have seen much handsomer men and it cannot be because he is clever for i must confess that to me he seems rather stupid why is it such a grand thing to marry mr lobier flo and why are the hinchcliffs envious and aunt jane in spirits is it because he is rich ah to be sure that's what it is of course he is rich 
and we are a wealthy nation and to marry the wealthiest bachelor of the season is the supremest felicity to which a young lady can attain i begin to understand it all now but i am such a old-fashioned man flo that i like the old idea of love in a cottage best papa said florence after a pause mamma's marriage was a love match and she loved you very dearly as you deserve to be loved you dear disagreeable old darling and i know that she never repented having married you but when you were very very poor did you never feel sorry for having taken her from the comfortable home in russell square and the carriage and the servants and the friends and all that she lost when she became your wife yes flo answered the painter sadly god knows i had my hours of remorse and bitterness but you had no need to be remorseful papa cried flo who perceived that she touched too sad a memory for mamma loved you dearly and she was happier with you than she would have been in a palace even if people were generally happy in palaces which as far as i can ascertain they are not but i'm not like mamma i have been brought up among rich people and the thought of poverty frightens me i look at houses sometimes in which people exist and are tolerably happy i suppose in their own miserable way and i think that i couldn't live in such a house or in such a neighborhood do you remember taking me up to some place near islington to see one of mr foley's pictures islington seemed like a new world to me and i felt that i should commit suicide if i lived there a week to be out of reach of the parks to have no horse to ride no pretty dresses to wear no nice fashionable friends to visit to ride in omnibuses and wear old-fashioned bonnets and go through life shabby and dowdy and neglected oh what utter misery it all seems i know all this sounds selfish and horrible papa but i have been brought up to be selfish and horrible i dare say your feelings are perfectly natural my dear replied mr crawford but i don't understand them i don't understand you i understand nothing about the age in which i live all i can say to you is to implore you to think seriously before you take so serious a step as that you talk of so lightly it seems a fashion to talk lightly of solemn things nowadays and no one would imagine from the manner in which people discuss a marriage that it was to be the affair of a lifetime you are very young flory and you can afford to wait if you feel that you can be happy with mr lobier marry him 
but if you have the slightest doubt up on that point let no inducement upon earth tempt you to become his wife the unhappy marriages of the present day and in the divorce court but as i said before you can afford to wait oh yes papa cried miss crawford and while i am waiting and deliberating some designing minx will pounce upon mr lobier and marry him before i know where i am what a dear unsophisticated thing you are and what a dreadful worldly wretch i am papa but you see i am not so much worse than other people there is your model gretchen your favorite cecil chundelay who was always lecturing me about my mercenary sentiments yet you see after all she has married a great lumbering irish barrister only because he has two or three thousand a year but lady cecil may be very much attached to mr o'bonneville yes papa answered flo pertly she may but then on the other hand she mayn't attached to him indeed a man whose coats and collars were made in the year one and must have been old-fashioned then i should think if adam had decent tastes in dress but he can change his coats and collars and really o'bonneville is a very good fellow and a very clever one yes papa but what women ever cared about such cleverness as that a man whose greatest achievement is to cross-examine some stupid witness and set a stupid jury laughing at his stupid jokes no you dear innocent parent cecil did not care two straws about the uncultivated queen's council but she married him because he is well off and can give her what people call a good home a good home in brunswick square poor cecil i am dying to call upon her and hear how she endures her existence in bloomsbury after this miss crawford contrived to turn the conversation she talked of her father's pictures the countess of shrewsbury the larger classical subject which he was going to finish before the first of may anything and everything except mr lobler and after dining tete-a-tete -tete with mr crawford florence retired to array herself in blue gauze and returned to the drawing-room to await a friendly dowager who was to call for her at ten o'clock and beneath whose sheltering wing she was to appear at a party to which mr lobier had also been bidden the master of pevenshaw place and the lobier mills called on the painter the next day and made a formal demand for the hand of his daughter you won't find me illiberal in the matter of settlements mr crawford said the rich man as the painter deliberated with a cloud brow and a thoughtful aspect let your lawyer name his own terms and fight the business out 
with my fellow when i fall in love with a beautiful woman i'm not the sort of man to spoil my chance by a niggardly policy said mr lobier whose tone was rather calculated to convey the idea that florence crawford was not the first beautiful woman with whom he had fallen in love but the painter was too much struck by the first part of the young man's speech to pay much attention to the latter portion my dear sir he exclaimed i dare say what you have just been saying is very generously intended but you must remember that we are not making a bargain my daughter is not one of my pictures to be disposed of to the highest bidder and i assure you i have my fancies even about the disposal of them and don't always care to sell them to the person who offers me most money if i consider your proposal at all i must consider it as it affects my daughter's future happiness not her purse i suppose a settlement is a usual thing with a man of your wealth and in that case i am willing that you should do what is fair and just if you marry my daughter but i cannot for a moment allow you to put forward your money as an inducement to me when you propose to become the husband of my only child mr lobier for once in his life was thoroughly astounded here was a painter fellow who would sell you a picture by jed sir and thank you humbly for your patronage riding the high horse and giving himself the airs of a duck this was what the great lobier said afterwards to his chief toady and confidant but he was completely subdued at the time and was fain to sue most humbly for permission to make florence crawford his wife i do not see very well how i can withdraw my consent returned the painter with a sigh when he responded to mr lobier's very meekly worded appeal you have already proposed to my daughter and she has accepted your proposal subject to my approval she tells me very dutifully i think it is rather too late for me to interfere mr lobler especially as there seems no particular reason why i should interfere if my daughter loves you and if you love her as truly and purely as a man ought to love the woman he marries i cannot say no all i ask is that you will not be in a hurry that you will wait a year at the least i want to know you better before i trust my daughter's happiness to your keeping but mr lobier protested that a year under such circumstances would be an eternity or something to that effect and after considerable supplication on the part of miss crawford's lover who talked of himself in a dejected way as the most devoted fellow that ever was you know and as 
a fellow who wanted to settle down in his own home and all that sort of thing you know the painter consented that the year of probation should be reduced by one half and that the end of six months mr lobier might claim his bride always provided that his future father-in-law had reason to think well of him in the meantime after this the young man departed triumphant but with a certain air of sulky discomfiture about him in the midst of his triumph if a fellow were a pauper there couldn't be more row about the business he muttered as he stepped into the unapproachable phantom which had been such a success on the west cliff i never knew before to-day that fellows with half a million of money were so plentiful that people whose daughters they want to marry need turn up their noses at them mr crawford went back to his painting-room after the interview with his future son-in-law very grave of aspect he went to his painting-room for comfort as a devotee might go into a church his large easel occupied the centre of the room with a great blank canvas upon it while the countess of shrewsbury was turned ignominiously to the wall he took some dingy brownish tint from his palette and sketched the outline of a woman's form upon the fair white canvas no map of confused and wavy lines preceded the perfect outline but every stroke was sharp precise and permanent where other men indulged in a chalky network of vague curves and undulations william crawford drew a firm and lasting outline with his brush the long labors of years had made him the first of modern draughtsmen as well as the greatest of modern colorists but to-day mr crawford's work did not afford him that serene pleasure which it was his wont to feel when he stood before his easel his brush was less rapid than usual and after standing for some moments staring at his canvas without seeing it he turned with an impatient sigh and began to walk up and down the room i do not like thee he muttered with his hands plunged deep in the pockets of his velvet morning coat i'm not at all clear about the reason but i do not like thee and i wish i wish my pretty little impertinent florence were going to marry any one else in this world rather than you my worthy fell but the girls of the present day are past my comprehension and the women too for the matter of that yes miss champer known the women too the painter sighed more heavily than before as he said this he took a little note from his waistcoat pocket presently and from the half listless half unwilling manner in which he unfolded the miniature sheet and glanced at the half dozen lines inscribed thereon 
It was evident that he had read the note before, and yet it was no very important document. It was only a woman's epistle, half of remonstrance, half of invitation. But the tiny sheet of paper was a marvel of delicate emblazonry in the way of crest and arms, a monogram and address, and the paper exhaled a rare and subtle perfume as of myosotis or orange blossom. "'What are you doing, Mr. Crawford?' began the painter's correspondent in a hand which was firm without being masculine, bold, and yet neat, a hand which had an originality and character of its own, and which once seen was rarely forgotten or confounded with any other calligraphy. What are you doing, and why have I seen neither you nor Florence since my return to town? I am anxious to hear all about your pictures for this season, or to see them, but I shall not come to your painting room uninvited, and in the meantime you and your daughter know where to find me. Always truly yours, Georgina Champernown. Shall I go to her? thought the painter. I made up my mind to keep clear of her for this year at least and already I am tempted to waver. She won't leave me alone. She won't let me work in peace and forget her if I can. What is it to her that I have worked and waited for twenty years to win the place I hold? What is it to her? She likes to see me in her drawing room and to exhibit me to the people amongst whom she lives. I suppose I am a kind of lion in my way, and that she likes to show me in my cage. What does it matter to her if she distracts me from my work? It pleases her to keep me in an intermittent fever of perplexity and despair. What am I to her amongst a hundred admirers? I am only something different from the rest of them. She has her museum of lovers, as she has her cabinet of china, her collection of antique silver, her orchids, her angora cats, and I am a curious specimen of the genus painter very hopeless shall i go to her to be fooled as i have been fooled year after year ever since i have been worth a place in her exhibition no no mrs champernone noni as the citizens of ghent said to philip van artveld one night do something with van artveld by the by and the quaint old costumes and the pure peak roofs of the houses and the infuriated burghers clamorous for their leader's blood nini mrs champernone i will not go near you i have my great picture to paint between this 
and the twenty-eighth of april and i have to hold my own against the critics so i will send you my daughter with a pretty message and i will invite you to my painting room on the last day in april with the connoisseurs and the amateurs and the art critics on the newspapers and the unknown strangers who come to stare at the painter under pretense of looking at his pictures but when mr crawford had spent about three hours at his easel he laid down his palette and brushes and looked at the clock upon the mantelpiece the infallible clock upon which weary models cast furtive glances as the day wore on to see when another hour had expired and another shilling had been earned i can't go on any longer without a young person as flo calls my professional model said mr crawford and i think i should like to show her my sketch before i go seriously to work at this picture her taste is perfect and she might suggest something besides which it's getting too dark for work added the painter rather irreverently the she of whom he spoke so vaguely was mrs champernone and he wanted to find an excuse for going to her he took a small canvas from amongst others leaning against the wall and slipped it into a green baize cover he rang the bell told the servant to fetch a cab and then retired into a dressing-room that adjoined the larger chamber where he exchanged his velvet painting coat for the broadcloth of everyday life End of chapter 14 recorded by linda marie nielsen vancouver b c